Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. 12, 11, 10. Hello and welcome to Space Boffins. I'm Sue Nelson and today's podcast is a special edition with the first woman to command the space shuttle. Five, four, three. We have a go for engine start. Zero. We have booster ignition and liftoff of Columbia, reaching new heights for women in X-ray astronomy. Roger roll, Columbia, we're looking at. Hello, this is Eileen Collins, retired Air Force Colonel and former NASA astronaut. We met up recently in Yorkshire, where she was the special guest of Space Lectures. And after sitting next to her at dinner and having an informal chat, Eileen agreed to a quick interview before her public talk the next day for Space Boffins. The talk took place in a school in Pontefract and we were in the library so you'll hear people coming in and out of there in the background and the odd camera shutter snap as the photographer for the event set to work. As time was pressing I jumped straight in by asking how Eileen felt about the space shuttle no longer being in service. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end. Well, there needed to be change. Now, more than anybody, or maybe I should say as much as anyone else, I absolutely loved the space shuttle and the space shuttle program and the people that worked in the program. The shuttle had flown for 30 years, and the shuttle had also uh, been involved in two fatal accidents, And even though we had fixed the problems that caused the accident, to a certain extent, it was time to retire the shuttle and build a replacement. Now, that's very painful to do, and change is painful. And I hated to see the shuttle go. I hated to see the shuttle go into museums, and I would have loved to have flown another mission. I retired several years before the end of the shuttle program because I I could see that the end was coming, and I could also, in fact, let me say that the time I retired, there were 50 astronauts, five zero, 50 astronauts who hadn't even flown one mission yet, and we had only 18 missions left to fly. So and I'm you'd a, flown four by then. And I had flown four. I, did, I thought, do I really need to fly a fifth mission? As much as I would have loved to do that, 
um, I made the decision to retire, and I served on the NASA Advisory Council for the next five years. And I did support the decision to stop flying the shuttle, as painful as it was. I, we could have continued flying the shuttle. I mean, that would have been that would have been fine. But NASA doesn't have the resources to fly the shuttle and build the replacement at the same time. So we had to stop flying, and th- that money that was used to operate the shuttle is now being spent to build the replacements. And we have three rockets that are being funded by NASA right now. Two of them are in a commercial program with SpaceX and Boeing. Those two rockets, either both of them or one of them, will fly to the space station to take astronauts to low-Earth orbit. The other rocket is the Space Launch System, which is much bigger. That's being built by NASA, and that will go deep space. And Columbia, Houston, you are go at throttle up. Columbia, go at throttle up. And all three engines are back at uh, full throttle. Columbia is now eight miles downrange, altitude 14 miles. What was the shuttle like to fly? I think of the shuttle as really three different things. It's a rocket on launch, so you're flying a rocket for the first portion of the flight. It's a satellite on orbit, and it's an airplane on entry and landing. So what was it like to fly? Um, You kind of have to split it up in those three phases. So on launch is a rocket. It's flown uh, automatically, although it can be hand-flown. After 90 seconds, it can theoretically be hand-flown by the astronauts, although it's very, very difficult. So we fly it by the autopilot and the computers. So the, the what's it like to fly the launch? There's a lot of shaking going on, a lot of noise, um, a lot of flashing lights in the window. You're under huge acceleration. When you're in orbit, you're in microgravity. So how do we fly it up there? Um, you have to strap yourself in the seat or you have to uh, put your feet in foot loops because you have to secure yourself if you want to have a stable platform to fly. But we hand fly in orbit. Most of the time it's on autopilot, but when we for example, rendezvous and dock with the space station, that is hand-flown by the commander. So we make the same inputs into the stick the way you would in an airplane, but instead of control surfaces moving, you have jets that fire. So, for example, a left input in the stick would send a message to the computer that would fire the jets that would translate you to the left, and you have pitch and roll jets also. So in space, the logic behind it is like an airplane, but it feels... It doesn't feel like an airplane because it's it's like a satellite. You feel jets fire and you feel a little kick in your pants, and then you'll feel the roll or the or the maneuver. And then you need to stop. Once you start moving, you have to make an opposing input to stop it, if you, or else you'll just keep spinning. And then coming home, it's like flying an airplane without engines. Ten thousand feet. Touch and land, okay. Body flaps trail. Sure. Keep flying the instruments. Eight thousand feet. There's a runway. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Better than any SJ. 7,000 feet. 6,000 feet. So, you know, I should say that coming home, you, you fly like an airplane, but you have control surfaces because you're back in the air. You have elevons, like ailerons, elevons, rudder. And since we don't have an engine to go around if we're too low, we come in high energy and we have a speed brake that we modulate to control our energy so we land on the runway that we're targeting. 210, looking good. 8654322, touchdown. Right, sure. Three is opening. Derotating. She's coming. Nice. One, okay, down at one and a half. Okay. Load release. How does it compare then to being a test pilot? Because I read that you test flown over 30 different types of aircraft. So which would you rather fly, a shuttle or a a new type of aircraft? 
Well, they each have their own challenges, and 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 I I uh, have enjoyed doing both. They're, again, they're both challenging. Now, I have flown thirty uh, some different types of aircraft, but only a subset of those were test flying. I mean, it's very very rare that someone would actually test fly thirty airplanes. But I had um, I, w- I would say that the space shuttle is even up to the last flight, it was still flight test, although it was a mature phase of flight test. And we learned in the Columbia accident that we had maybe tried to fly the shuttle with a little more operational, do I want to say logic, or the decision-making behind the, in the shuttle program was we were trying to get to be like maybe an airliner. And we never got there. So we had to remind ourselves, this is still flight test. And we had flown 135 missions in space. Now, if you had an airplane that you were testing, 135 missions would still be in the flight test phase. So... As a test pilot, I flew in the mature part of the shuttle program towards the end of it. The astronauts that flew in the early part of the program did the, the truly the very beginning of flight test when they flew the approach and landing test out at Edwards, and I was still in high school when that was taking place. And the first four shuttle flights were um, pure flight test. Um, they even had ejection seats on the first four. But really? beginning, beginning with the fifth shuttle flight, they took the ejection seats out. And the reason was, now when, when the first four flights, there were only two pilots, well, a commander and a pilot, and you could put in the ejection seats for two people. You couldn't fit the shuttle with ejection seats for the other. It just structurally was not able to, to do that. So they took all the ejection seats out, and they declared that the test phase was over. But really, the way to think of it, it was a second phase of testing, maybe a little more mature phase, and that's the one that I flew in. Columbia Houston, UHF comm check. Columbia Houston, UHF comm check. Communications uh, with Columbia were lost at about 8 a.m. Central Time, about uh, 10, 10 minutes ago. By the very nature, pilots are very cool and calm under pressure, which is exactly what you need to be the commander of a space shuttle or to pilot the space shuttle after Columbia there was a lot of pressure on you particularly from the media because you were taking the shuttle up the first time I know you didn't show that pressure but did you feel that pressure at all well yes and I think there was one time that I showed the pressure and uh it was about three days after the accident when we still didn't know what happened and it was somewhere in that time frame we we learned what caused the accident but as time went on, I, I could see that, you know, I obviously I'm the commander of the next mission, which was not going to fly in five weeks. It was going to delay, and I, it ended up delaying two and a half years. But I made sure that I was knowledgeable on as much what's going on with the accident investigation, um, what's going on with the return to flight. I'm still going to be flying my mission. Are we doing the right things? What do we have to change? We actually changed quite a few crew members. We changed a lot of our objectives for our flight, but I saw that people were really struggling, and I I ended up entering a role that I hadn't done in my previous shuttle command. You know, I was always very a very technical commander. Okay, what do we have to do? Let's make sure we're trained. Let's make sure we have the right resources. Make sure that mission control is in sync with us, and all of those things. But after the Columbia accident, there was an emotional aspect of all of these things that were taking place, and you would see people getting very upset. And I think it was because, number one, we missed our astronauts that we lost, and 
I think people felt guilty even though they didn't do anything wrong. They, people still had guilt feelings. And there was also a competition for resources. So there was a limited amount of money, and a lot of those that were working on return to flight wanted their project to be selected or they wanted their project to fly. And we had to down-select and just fly the ones that, that we really could put on the shuttle. You don't have space for everything. You don't have money for everything. So it was really – there was some – there were some gaps in the leadership in that area. And I thought as a crew member, especially as the shuttle crew commander, it was important for me to come in at a couple places and say say things like, you know, you're really doing a great job. I'm sorry that we didn't select your uh, version uh, for the return to flight, but we need you to get on board with the rest of the team because we've got to make this work. So I found myself doing things like that, and maybe in a meeting uh, when people got upset, like, okay, we're all here for the same reason. Okay, let's kind of focus on why we're here. And, you know, I, I, was, I was tired through a lot of it because we were constantly working and trying to meet a fake launch date. And right after the accident happened, they, the accident happened on April 1st. Well, my launch was moved from March 5th to April 9th. <laughs> We're not going to fly on April 9th. The accident report isn't even going to be done. But everyone was still working towards April 9th, and so we finally got the shuttle program to delay it to July. Well, that helped a little bit, but we weren't going to fly in July either. And then they delayed it to September, and then and then we finally got the September launch date moved to the following September, and everybody was able to take a big breather. And we were able to really get in and fix things that we weren't able to fix with an early launch date. And it was disappointing to people, um, even across the country, people were disappointed that, oh, we have to wait another year to get the shuttle flying again. But because that happened, we were able to take apart the shuttles and go do inspections in areas that really needed to be inspected, but were going to take many, many months. So those were the kind of, I mean, I could go on and on and talk about the return to flight period, but it, it was... It didn't, uh, go in, it didn't go, still didn't go 100% well on the launch. There were oh, a few we, technical We issues. had a very embarrassing problem happen on my flight, which went, uh, okay, so the accident was February of 03. I flew in July of 05. So almost two and a half years later, well, the whole, we, we had th- three main things that we had to do to get back to flying again. Stop foam from falling off the fuel tank was the first. The second was inspect, and the third was repair. But that very first one, stop the foam, we knew we couldn't stop all foam, but we could stop big pieces Regardless, on my launch, a big piece of foam fell off on my launch. But we had this time we had cameras on the shuttle, so we saw it come off. Firing chain is armed. 20. Sounds of pressure water system is active, being activated. Brain safe systems armed. T minus 10 seconds. Go for main engine start. Six, five, three engines up and burning. Three, two, one. And liftoff of Space Shuttle Discovery, beginning America's new journey to the moon, Mars, and beyond. And the vehicle has cleared the tower. Houston's now controlling. Commander Arlene Collins confirming Discovery's rolling onto a course for rendezvous with the International Space Station. Fortunately, it missed the wing, but it went right underneath the wing, and it could have hit us. And, of course, I was embarrassed by this, and the uh, the shuttle program management was embarrassed by it. 
we safely made it to orbit. Um, the first week we were up there, we did all the Sunday morning talk shows, which were national shows. All of them called in, and on orbit, we, we did the interviews, and they said, aren't you mad that this happened? And I said, I was part of the team, and I knew that this was an area that we didn't fix, and I listened to the rationale, and I approved of it. I, I never actually signed anything, but I verbally approved of it because I thought it was okay. That gives you, I mean, I'm the crew member flying, and I won't go into the whole technical. It will take too long here, but they gave me some technical rationale that was very good and very logical, and even as a test pilot, I um, accepted their it just goes to show you space is a dangerous place to fly, and you cannot control everything. And even the astronauts that fly on their spacecraft, I mean, they're going to make the safest decisions possible because they're the ones going. So this one even got by me. So I told the national news media, don't be so hard on the shuttle program because this is very difficult. This is a very difficult thing to do. We're just going to have, we're in the flight, we're still in a flight test phase. We're still going to be making mistakes. We're going to make it better. But you can see why we retired the shuttle. Yeah. You, the shuttle's heat shield is down low. It's where all the stuff that falls off the rocket can hit their heat shield. We will never, ever again design a spacecraft like the space shuttle where the heat shield is exposed on the launch. That's a bad design. This is Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. <laughs> Naked Scientists, Greer here. And Tom too. We're back to remind you about our survey. As you may know, we're going to be changing a few things at the Naked Scientists and want to know what you think. We've had a great response so far. Thank you to the 200 people who've taken five minutes to give us the download. But we need more. Our target is 500. So please stop what you're doing and head to thenakedscientist.com slash survey. There are some Amazon vouchers up for grabs. We'll be pulling names out of a hat in mid-June. Good luck, and in the meantime, happy typing. You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you about this and other podcasts. There's a great back catalogue on the Naked Scientist website. But before you get searching, let's return to my interview with the first female space shuttle commander, Eileen Collins. Nowadays, there's a, a, a new generation of astronauts coming through both in Europe and in China and India and all, all over the world, not just NASA. And yet there is still a lot of a different type of pressure on the women. And Karen Nyberg, when she was up recently, she had to answer in press conferences questions about her hair. Did, did you... Are you disappointed by that, or do, or, or do you think it has improved at all for for, for women? Because to an, an observer, it, it doesn't look as though it has much. Well, you know, I think we've really graduated to... I, I've got to say, the hair questions, I'm just going to answer them, because, you know, the early women astronauts were upset by that because they didn't ask the men that. And I don't blame them. I would have been upset, too. You know, hey, you're not asking that guy about his hair. But we have graduated to another phase Women are totally integrated in the shuttle, in, well, and they were totally integrated in the shuttle program, and now they're still totally integrated in the space program. We don't have the numbers as high, and, and that is not the fault of the space agencies. Young women can choose to go into science and engineering and math, which they need to do if they want to be an astronaut or even work in the technical side of the space program. 
they need to choose those degrees. And NASA, and I'm sure the other international space agencies, are more than happy to select women if they're qualified and they're and they're out there in the in the same numbers. So. I'm okay with answering the hair questions, and I have fun with them because I know that there's people out there in the world that are not going to understand my science experiment, or they're not going to understand the conversation that we just had about the about the technical side of the shuttle program, and they want to hear about fun stuff. They want to hear about things that they, they do every day. I do my hair every day. It's okay to ask those questions, so bring them on, and I'll answer them. I'll make jokes. I'll have fun. I try to keep the audience in mind who's listening and, you know, kind of make it a fun thing and help them connect with how, what would it really like, would it really be like if they were in space. As you say, it's, uh, women are integrated in the space agencies. It just sounds like the rest of the world needs to catch up. I, you know, I do, and I think that some people need to lighten up a little bit. Do you miss space? I know you've probably been yeah. asked this before, but I've got to ask yeah. you. Yeah, I do miss it. I would like to go back again someday. Um, I have uh, two children, and this is, you know, people, oh, a guy would never say that. But I'm going to be honest with you. I wanted to be home while my children were teenagers. So that was another, you know, I wasn't really there when they were young because I'm out busy flying. I, mean, I shouldn't say I wasn't there. I was there almost every night, but I worked long days. And I always had my job in the back of my head. But my children were very good for me because I, I called my children my stress relievers because when I came home, I, 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 before my children, I'd come home and I'd have my job all the time. I'd always be thinking about it and I'd always be you know, working. But once I had my children, I had to drop my job for that period of time that I was with them, which was before dinner, dinner, evening, put them to bed. And for that period of time, I didn't think about my job. And that was the best thing for me is just being with my kids. So I say, I I say that my kids were my stress relievers and I'm so glad that I had them. And, uh, but they were the reason my daughter was becoming a teenager and, and she was part of my decision to, to leave the astronaut program. But I would always I don't know if they're going to want an old lady back, but if they called me back someday, I would go back. Who would you go back with? If That's I, a leading question. If I was going to fly in space again someday, um, now who I flew with wouldn't really matter as much as what rocket or spacecraft would I fly. I would have to really understand, study and understand the systems, know the risks. Um, there's a process for that, and I would want to go through, go through all that and, uh, you know, before I made a decision to fly again. Eileen Collins, NASA astronaut and pilot. A huge honour to have met her and thanks to the wonderful space lectures for arranging access. If you want to meet any astronauts and hear them talk, do check out what space lectures are doing in the UK in Yorkshire. I bumped into Helen Keane when I was there for Eileen Collins, so you'll definitely be among friends. And I know that Apollo 13 astronaut Jim Lovell is giving a talk in Pontefract this autumn, again through space lectures, but act quickly because that could well be fully booked already. Do catch up with us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, Some of the questions that we've been asked, we will answer them in our next podcast and it will be a bumper one as usual, including the ethical geek. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We'll be back again next month. So until next time, thanks for listening.